0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's been decades since anyone's seen the roses bloom that were planted by Japanese-American prisoners at Colorado's Camp Amachi. But that may soon change thanks to a horticultural intervention.
1: They're witness roses. They were there. And they remain to this day to tell that story of someone's hope, of someone's skill,
0: Survivors, descendants, and historians are eager to see what color the flowers will be. Later, a Denver food writer gathers cookie and cake recipes from some of today's top chefs and food bloggers. Then, Ham handedly tries them herself.
2: I'm not a great baker and a worse cook, so I do like to eat though, and I really like dessert and baked goods.
0: We picked a recipe and met up in my kitchen.
3: We're all used to monthly subscriptions, monthly bills, monthly fees, and we know paying for things over time makes the total costs more manageable. It's one of the reasons why the majority of CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to incrementally grow their gift, making small adjustments as their budget allows. Add a few dollars a month to your monthly contribution. Email your gift increase instructions to membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. They couldn't believe their eyes. Something was growing across the remnants of a doorway.
3: Nobody knew of their existence, which was incredible. How can we be tracing around in this godforsaken area? And then all of a sudden they come across these roses
0: a desiccated stand of roses on the site of Camp Amachi, the internment camp in southeastern Colorado, where the U.S. government sent more than 10,000 Japanese Americans during World War II, including the woman you just heard, 82-year-old Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker. She was three then, spent about three years at Amachi with her mother, father, and some extended family. And since 2010, she has returned to the camp, where very few of the original buildings stand, to help conduct research, research led by archeologist Bonnie Clark of the University of Denver.
1: Every time I've been at Amachi, I have gone to check on the roses, especially when we've had a lot of rain, because I thought, well, maybe, I mean, they are hardy, they are living, but I have never seen them bloom.
0: But that is soon to change. A decade after their discovery, cuttings of the Amachi roses are thriving in a greenhouse at the Denver Botanic
4: Gardens. We are standing in front of a bit of a mystery, aren't we? It is. This is a rose that we've been working on that we're not sure what color it is, what the parents are.
0: Horticulturist Mike Bone, who at Clark's request, traveled to Amachi last fall.
4: We cut and process the cuttings and we clean them, so spray them with like a little hydrogen peroxide, keep them moist, wrapped in water, and we kept them in a cooler until we can get back here to the garden. So we cut them to the right sizes. We make some wounds on there so that the plant can start to grow new roots, treating them with rooting hormones, put them in our special propagation greenhouse. And as they started to root, then we transplanted them into some of these smaller pots, and we've got a couple that we've potted into larger sizes that will plant out into some of our gardens here um, just to sort of keep the story of this mysterious rose alive. My hope is that by midsummer, we'll probably have some blooms on these and be looking at something really beautiful. Do you have a guess as to what color it might be? My guess, being that it's kind of this brambly wild type, is that it's probably going to be a soft pink, could be soft pink bicolor with some white, um, but likely a fragrant, maybe, I don't know, six, seven centimeters across, um, likely have, will have a small red hip on it. An
0: educated guess, but not all the clippings have stayed at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Several were given to Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker, the Amachi survivor who now lives in Fresno, California. A crew making a film about the roses delivered the little green gift.
3: And I said, what am I gonna plant them in? Oh, it's incredible. Every day I would go out and see if they were growing. And so I knew, first of all, of their historic importance. And secondly, what a responsibility I had. And God, what if they died? You know, (laughs) so it was very precious and very significant because I knew that they were representative of people who had been there, who had brought them, had propagated them. And gosh, they were showing survivorship just like we were. So when he handed these to me, I thought, oh my God, (laughs) what a responsibility.
0: She still regularly checks on them and updates her loved ones with pictures.
3: I just went out and looked at them. Each of them has three little shoots coming up. So they are alive. Well, see also we don't know what they're gonna look like. Nobody knows what the flowers are gonna look like. So that in itself is incredible. So we're really excited.
0: Also a mystery, where the original rose bush came from. Archaeologist Bonnie Clark has gone over and over in her head about this.
1: So these are some kind of introduced rose. So they most likely came from a nursery or someone may have brought a cutting with them. It's hard to know. One thing is that they've clearly spread from where they were originally planted because they're actually growing across a doorway, which I don't think they would have been originally. So it's hard to know which family planted them, but most of the people who lived in the the block where we found them at Amachi were from Los Angeles. I mean, just because there's no chance that they would have been growing there before Amachians got there, they are the most likely people to have put them there, so.
0: It also seems quite unlikely to me, but maybe this is because I don't love flowers quite as much as other people, That if you were told to pack your things, you know, after order 9066, that you would have had the presence of mind to bring your rose seeds or whatever.
1: But if you were a plant person, especially if you were a professional plant person, that is something you would have thought of. And not necessarily at Amachi, but at other camps, we know people, for example, brought bonsai with them. And we have a jar of seeds that we found... Um, doing archaeological survey that were clearly saved in a jar that predated the war. And so we suspect it came to Amachi the same way we found it, with saved seeds.
0: Okay, Dr. Clark, there's going to be a moment when this plant will bloom, when you'll see the flower. What movement are you making when I say that?
1: I'm raising my hands in the air. I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) What do you think that moment will be like?
1: I don't know. Um, Probably emotional for me. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Why? Well, first off, I love this idea of plants as living witnesses to the past. These are, they're, they're witness roses. They were there. They have been there, and they remain to this day to tell that story of someone's hope, of someone's skill, of someone's determination. And it's also a curiosity. What color will they be? What variety will they be? It's a big mystery, and that it will reveal itself in such a beautiful way. And in the year that Amachi became a national park, it's just, you know it's all the good things coming together
0: indeed this year amachi officially known as the grenada relocation center joined the park service as a national historic site i think of how much agricultural heritage remains in colorado or legacy because internees and their progeny stayed So my sense is that any number of those who were interned had farm and botanical backgrounds. Is that a fair understanding?
1: Absolutely. So, and this is kind of based on census data, but in 1940, so right before the war, over 40% of Japanese Americans were involved in agriculture or horticulture and then another 20% in businesses that were related to them. So like produce stands or nurseries. I mean, yeah, you have 60% of these people have real skill in how to grow things. And it would make sense that that expertise lives on in the plants that they planted in the way that they amended the soil. And then and of course, in the descendants, and, and you know, we've been so lucky to work with professional gardeners like Greg Kitajima, who is an Amachi descendant and also a gardener. And he's really helped me better understand the, the legacy of these gardens.
0: For her part, Carlene Tanakoshi Tinker recalls things growing at Amachi, but has no recollection of roses, which were found a ways from her family's barracks.
3: Remember, I was a, a young child. I was only three Probably not interested in roses anyway, but um, I would not have been able to pass by these.
0: <laughs> but she passes by them now in her own backyard. When I do this story, I want to be careful not to, oh, make it like too Hollywood or saccharine. In other words, you, you said this beautifully that the flowers represent, I think your word was survivorship. Um, but what, what is it also important to think about if I see one of these flowers?
3: Well, let's see. I think when you found out, let's say somebody's taking you on a tour. Hey, Ryan, look, these flowers were actually planted by the attorneys. Isn't that an amazing story? What does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me as a survivor myself. It showed their resilience, their fortitude, their ability to withstand really harsh conditions, harsh winters, hot summers of which I've experienced. Um, One year we had 112 degree weather when we were out excavating. So yeah, Ryan, what, what would you think about that? What do these represent to you? Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, beautifully. If they bloom the same year, it becomes a National Historic Site. Will that hold meaning for you?
3: Oh, definitely. It's sort of like a regrowth. We survive. Wow. It's an awakening. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It would be like an awakening, a reawakening from this long sleep of decades of lying fallow Maybe they were blooming all the time. Nobody noticed them. But yeah, now here we are. We get a chance to be part of this. Now, that sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? But <laughs> that, all of a sudden, I'm just thinking of that metaphorically, metaphorically. <laughs>
0: And so we wait to see if the roses on public display at the Denver Botanic Gardens bloom, if the ones in Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker's garden bloom. And maybe, says horticulturist Mike Bone, if they bloom again at Amachi.
4: Some of the plants will go back and they're cultivating some spaces and working on some interpretation. So I think it'll be interesting to have sort of that paradox of where the plants are growing harsh in there, left alone and unattended versus what it looks like near a visitor center or an interpretive site where people are caring for it and re-loving this rose that had been sort of forgotten. Once they bud and once they flower, we'll be able to take some measurements, get flower color, and be able to kind of compare back to what we think some of these parents are or is this something that was cultivated and just brought to the site from wild populations. Can you imagine that people, you know, around Colorado would grow their own Amachi roses? I would think so. It has a lot of features that are great for Colorado landscapes. One, it survives our really dry prairies. Too. Roses are incredibly important plants for pollinators, for habitats. When we cultivate plants that go to the market, we have permissions from landowners to be able to sell or do those. But I think it would be a, a great opportunity to raise awareness about this site. Potentially, if part of the funds go back to support that program, I think that could be amazing as well. What do you feel when you work with these? You know, it's, it's a pretty reflective moment, Obviously, there's this history of culture and, you know, the things that the U.S. government had done to populations of people living here who were Americans who, but had this Japanese descent. So, you, you get sort of this introspective and it, it, I don't know, it brings up kind of conflicting emotions just when you think of the site and what it is and what it means. I get a hopefulness from it knowing that sort of that's over and that these stories are still alive and I've... Get this feeling or, you know, these thoughts that maybe we're going to learn from past mistakes and not repeat these things. But you also look around and you're curious as to what's happening in the world as you see similar things like this happening still. So this history repeats itself. But working with the roses, you know, roses are sort of this iconic symbol of life and hope and future. You think of these, the old sailors or people get the tattoo of a rose with their mom's name or someone they love in their, you know, the classic rose tattoo. So it's embedded into counterculture. You think of, you know, these fancy rose gardens as this very formal and strict things, but someone who's traveled the world and studied plants, you see these harsh and difficult environments that they come from. So like the people who were at Amachi, there's a resilience, there's a survival to it and to them that, you know, it speaks to the fortitude of of human will and the ability to persist and to still find a way to flower and thrive even in the, the driest, harshest conditions.
0: It strikes me as creating beauty in a life where there was probably a lack of it
4: too, you know? Right, you know, the natural world, as well as the human-created world can be incredibly harsh and to be able to have moments or seasons that you can shine and thrive and be beautiful um, is really important for all of the forms, plants, humans, animals, you know, we all have our moments of, of beauty and integrity when we're faced with adversity.
0: Horticulturist at the Denver Botanic Gardens. We also heard from Camp Amachi survivor Carleen Tanagoshi Tinker and archaeologist Bonnie Clark of the University of Denver. There are photos of Carleen and her clippings, Mike in the greenhouse, and the wild rose bush at Amachi at CPR.org. And as soon as we hear that an Amachi rose has bloomed, we'll get a picture and tell you about it. A film about the plant debuts June 26th Finally, a note of thanks to two educators who've contributed to our recent Amachi coverage and who led us to the roses. Historian and author Andrew Gulliford of Fort Lewis College and Grenada High School social studies teacher, John Hopper. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
1: Colorado's FBI field office topped the nation in bank robberies last year.
5: Typically, bank robberies are committed by individuals as an act of desperation where they need the money for some personal reason, but more often than not, it's to feed a drug addiction.
1: Bandits make off with amounts that range from a couple of hundred dollars to several thousand dollars, but usually no one gets hurt. What goes down in a bank robbery and why does Colorado see so many? Read all about it at CPR.org.
0: What happens to a creek when the state no longer recognizes it as an official body of water? The Salt Creek community in Pueblo knows that answer firsthand. CPR climate and environment reporter Miguel Utarola has the story.
6: That sound is the rushing water of the Salt Creek, running alongside the BNSF railroad tracks south of Highway 50 here in Pueblo. The sign next to it says Salt Creek Junction. The community next to it is also named after the creek. But the Salt Creek is not a state water, not to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and not to the steel mill that dumps its wastewater into the creek.
5: If you lived in the neighborhood, would you want industrial
6: sewer running through the middle of your neighborhood? Um, I don't think so. That's Velma Campbell. She's a physician and a longtime resident of Pueblo. She's part of a group of lawyers and environmentalists demanding that the state bring back Salt Creek's designation and protections as a state water. The way Campbell sees it, If it looks like a stream and acts like a stream, just because you make changes to it doesn't mean it's not a stream anymore. In the 1970s, the steel mill fought hard to prove otherwise. State records show the Colorado Fuel and Iron Steel Corporation moved water from its reservoirs into the Salt Creek, which carried the water in and out of the steel mill property. The mill then treated the wastewater, discharging about 70 million gallons of water a day into the Arkansas River. In 1973, the state passed the Colorado Water Quality Control Act. It not only meant the mill now needed a permit to discharge its wastewater, it also needed to fully treat the water before putting it back into the Salt Creek. A hearing officer for the state reviewed the permit in 1978, His conclusion, Salt Creek was a natural intermittent stream and a tributary to the Arkansas River. Bill. Hello, Miguel. How you doing? Okay. Bill Oberle was the associate director of environmental programs for the state at the time, and he remembers what happened next. The steel mill, a powerful and well-connected employer in Pueblo, backed a state bill that would have excluded natural streams like Salt Creek from state water protections.
4: Uh, It was a big uh uh-oh. Uh, if this becomes law, our responsibilities to the people of the state of Colorado, we thought were going to be seriously compromised.
6: So the state and the steel mill struck a deal. Officials reversed the hearing officer's findings and reclassified the Salt Creek as a channel. The steel mill would still have to monitor levels of some chemicals, but the Salt Creek would no longer be considered a state water. The state continued that deal with the mill's current owner, Everest, nearly 40 years later. Their 2018 agreement caught the attention of environmental advocates who filed a letter to the state this month demanding it return the Salt Creek's protections under the Water Quality Control Act. The letter was worked on by local activists like Velma Campbell as well as students from CU Boulder's Environmental Law Clinic. Tess Udall is one of those students. She says the reclassification of the Salt Creek is an environmental injustice.
1: It's been there for so long, treated differently for so long, next to communities that are like oftentimes left out of public conversation, which is sort of what we're interested in
6: changing. The Salt Creek community is largely Hispanic and low-income, and federal data show it's vulnerable to multiple environmental threats. For decades, residents here have said they feel neglected by and inferior to the rest of Pueblo. Hello. Right, come on in. I visited the Fulton Heights Community Center here recently to speak with Jovita Chavez. She's lived her whole life in Salt Creek and has worked at the center since the 80s. She remembers the creek like most people here do, black and filled with contaminants. That's what we used to call it, the black water. The creek no longer runs black, but there are still signs the mill has had trouble meeting pollution rules. Records submitted to the EPA show several violations of federal clean water laws in the last three years, including high levels of oil, grease, and other substances in water entering the Arkansas River. Everest declined to be interviewed for this story. A spokesperson for the Colorado Water Quality Control Division says the state did not find the mill for those violations and that it isn't scheduled to review its wastewater permit until the end of next year. However, division engineers did inspect the mill's wastewater treatment as recently as February. Their report recommended the mill add more absorbent barriers to soak up contaminants from entering the creek. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News.
5: We
0: have chosen another book to read together.
5: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
0: Our next pick for Turn the Page is the true story of a Colorado private investigator. It's called Tell Me Everything. Author Erica Kraus was assigned to one of the most important sexual assault cases in U.S. history. It tested the scope of Title IX, which prevents discrimination based on sex in education.
1: Up until this point, Title IX was really about jerseys and facilities and that kind of thing. It wasn't ever about sexual assault. Uh, This is the first ever college sexual assault Title IX case. And it changed law to say Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Title IX also applies to actual protection of women and whether or not they can have the same education as men if they are under threat of sexual assault.
0: Read Krause's book and then join me and the author can really meet her because our next Turn the Page is in person the evening of June 10th. We'll be at Litfest in Denver. Tickets are free, and all the details are at cpr.org/slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tell Me Everything by Erica Kraus. Get your copy and then join us. Here's that URL one more time, cpr.org slash turn the page. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with 50 things to bake before you die. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC.
5: In Colorado's 6,000 miles of streams, the rainbow trout gets the glory, but the cutthroat trout is the true local. Rainbows were introduced to the Gunnison River in the late 19th century, but the cutthroats, marked with a crimson slash under their jaws, were already here, descendants of Pacific salmon that ventured further and further inland more than 3 million years ago. The ones that got the furthest evolved into the greenback cutthroat trout. Believed extinct by 1937, small populations were later discovered and the greenback cutthroat trout officially became the state fish in 1994. But in a case of mistaken identity, genetic testing found those fish were not true greenback cutthroats. A small number of the real thing, however, were found in a stream on the southern slope of Pikes Peak, stocked by an innkeeper more than a century earlier. Anglers will find them there today and in hatcheries around the state, making a comeback. A Colorado Postcard from CPR, with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. What do we have here?
3: Sprinkles.
5: Sprinkles. Rainbow sprinkles. Rainbow sprinkles.
0: About the happiest food, wouldn't you say? Yes, totally. And who are you?
2: I'm Allison Reedy.
0: And Allison, you have written a cookbook with the help of uh, bakers all over the world. What is the book called?
2: It's 50 Things to Bake Before You Die.
0: 50 Things to Bake Before You Die. You are a food writer. And how did it occur to you to do a kind of bucket list baking book? I understand you're not all that good a baker. No,
2: not at all. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm not a great baker and a worse cook. So I do like to eat, though. And I really like dessert and baked goods. So I kind of wanted like a greatest hits collection of... All the best recipes from the best bakers and you know famous bakers but not so famous bakers we have like pie from a little pie shop in kansas and then we also have christina tosi from the milk bar empire so oh yes all sorts of a, a good range of desserts
0: and why were you shaking sprinkles at me in my own kitchen
2: because <laughs> we're gonna make funfetti cookies
0: Fun funfetti yes cookies.
2: and this one comes to us from kate wood and she's a blogger for a baking blog called Wood and spoon
0: And so you found bakers you admired, you found bakers you never knew existed. Totally, yes. And and you kind of cold called them and said, can I get a recipe? (laughs) Yeah. For free?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I pretty much just, you know, tried to cajole all these recipes from the bakers that I admired or bloggers that I'd read or, you know, bakeries I'd been to and a lot of research, a lot of asking people their favorite baked goods, their favorite bakeries. And then, yeah, I just asked them.
0: So you've come to my home. What gives me some comfort is that I don't cook much either. In fact, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a very under-resourced kitchen. But I think I have the staples of what we'll need today as we and bake. And brought
2: the sprinkles.
0: And you brought the sprinkles. And then you also brought a helper. Who's <laughs> I this? I
2: did. I brought my daughter, Austin.
0: Hi, Austin.
1: Hi.
0: Have you made these cookies before? Yeah. All by yourself?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so are they, they're fairly easy. Yeah. I don't mean to dismiss your baking (laughs) abilities, but how old are you? Ten. Ten. I figure if a ten-year-old can make these cookies, I can probably do it even in my under-resourced kitchen. What do you like about these cookies?
2: That they're kind of crunchy, but I like that there's sprinkles in them, too.
0: Yeah, I can see Mm -hmm. that. Do you remember the first time you baked these, Allison?
2: Yeah, I think it had just snowed and my children were fighting over a hammer and a snow shovel for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and it was just stressful, and so I was angry, and here I am making these sprinkle cookies, these rainbow sprinkle Funfetti cookies. But, you know, it kind of melted away the anger once I've started playing with sprinkles.
0: They're kind of like peace cookies. Yes. Who won that fight? Do you remember, Austin? Me. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to verify this story from some of the other sources. All right, what are we going to need for the Funfetti
2: all right, cookies. we need butter at room temperature.
0: Is this enough butter?
2: Um, It takes a lot of butter, but <laughs> we need... Some of these recipes took like four, six sticks of butter, but this one's not too bad. It's a one and a quarter sticks, so 10 tablespoons. So okay. I think we have enough we butter. We have enough of that. Yes.
0: Austin, do you want to turn the oven, the oven on? Let's
2: the oven on.
0: You've got the recipe there. What do we want,
2: 350? I think. Probably yep. it's 350. All right,
0: so do we just do it here? Yep. It's old school. Ain't nothing fancy about this oven.
2: Do we do anything else? No. Nope. Okay.
0: Turn the dial. So it's at
2: 350, so our oven is preheating. Okay, you're gonna our need butter. what?
0: We're gonna need cookie
2: pans. We will need a yeah, baking sheet. And okay. we need a hand mixer.
0: Okay. Flour.
2: Brown sugar, white sugar. We need vanilla. Okay. An egg.
0: Fresh eggs bought today, folks. Nice.
2: And um, then let's see, salt. 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 Flour. Salt. That's salt. it, right?
0: Flour is here. Okay. You know, I hate that flour comes in those giant bags. Yeah, what is So this? I found a cylinder of quick-mixing, all-purpose flour. I
2: have never seen this before.
0: Because I, I, I never use a five-pound bag of flour.
2: Oh, my gosh. I went through so many of those.
0: Was this a, a weight-gaining affair?
2: I don't see how it's anything but when you're doing this. Yeah, I think I gained about 10 pounds, but my boyfriend gained more like 40, because he really went for it. So... Oh,
0: that's love. Yeah, that's... a He, that's he was invested lot. in this project. Now, it's an interesting project, Allison, to take on a baking cookbook at altitude. Yeah. Uh, how was it to make a cookbook like this in Colorado?
2: So actually, most of the recipes turned out pretty well. I mean, I didn't make any adjustments because the audience for this book is everywhere. So it's not specifically written for altitude, but I did make every single recipe in my kitchen at altitude. And yeah, they worked. Um, Typically, something that you would have trouble with are cakes rising and then maybe collapsing a little bit. And so what I found for that is just be really careful not to overmix when you add the dry ingredients. And then don't open and shut the door, checking on it all the time. That kind of helps.
0: What do you mean don't overmix the dry ingredients? So
2: when you're, you can overmix the wet. It seems like as much as you'd like when you're using either a stand mixer or the hand mixer. But when you add the, say, the flour, the dry ingredients into that, the butter and the sugar and the vanilla and the egg mixture, you just barely combine it.
0: Because
2: mm. then I think it's something to do with the amount of air getting in there and the rise and the collapse.
0: Interesting. Okay, so that sounded like it was a bit of trial and error at 5280.
2: Yeah, I had to. I had to ask some bakers for tips and, you know, ask different people for some help. That's how I had, for a story a long time ago, I had this Top Chef contestant come over to my house to cook with me and I had never made dinner in my kitchen because I just wasn't the cook in our family. My my ex-husband was and uh, he was like, okay, I need this, I need a spatula or this. I had no idea and so I was trying to find things all over my kitchen too. So I okay. feel you, I you get You feel it.
0: me. And we're already going to amend this recipe because I don't have brown sugar, <laughs> we're only using white.
2: And that's okay because I've had to do that with so many things where we didn't have exactly the right kind of sugar or the vanilla. In fact, this recipe, it wants clear vanilla, but who has clear vanilla? Clear you know? vanilla? No, I never bought Why clear vanilla. Even matter? And I don't even think it matters. <laughs> I think Austin so, has, the, has it right. <laughs> I think it's more for like aesthetic purposes that it keeps it more white, but it's totally fine. All right, so we are putting in our sugar and our butter.
0: Indeed, the star of this book might be Christina Tosi, who gives you the milk bar birthday layer cake recipe. Uh, this does not seem like a simple recipe.
2: No, that one took a couple days.
0: So that, a couple yeah, days? So that's
2: what I had to do. Unless you want to be in your kitchen for several hours, I don't have that kind of stamina. So, so you kind of divvied I it, up. it up. Yeah, and that's what I did with some of the more, what I call intima-bakes, like <laughs> the ones that really intimidated me. Um, what I was would, another example? The ultimate s'mores cake, which is one of Austin's favorite recipes. Oh,
0: yes. Austin's face just lit up. (laughs) Gooey Uh, marshmallow, chocolatey glory in that one.
2: Yeah, that one. They're both really great, but there's just so many components to them that I just had to separate it out. Like, okay, today I make the cake batter and I bake the cakes and then I freeze the cakes. And then tomorrow I do the frosting and the filling and whatnot.
0: Uh, How many layers in that birthday layer cake?
2: That looks great. Um, How many layers were there, Austin? Like three, three or four layers. Yeah, three three or four layers. And it had a layer of birthday cake crumb in between, which are kind of like cake batter balls. And then also the frosting. So it was, yeah, it's really good.
0: It's a texture adventure, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, and then also, of course, the sprinkles. Everything has the sprinkles in it. The cake, the little cake balls.
0: So, how was it to kind of cold call and say, "Give me a recipe?" How did that feel?
2: Um you know it, it's a little uncomfortable for me to to ask for things like that. I'm lucky because i'm I've been writing about food and restaurants for so long and that I have some really good contacts and people who are really helpful and kind and wanted to help me out. so, I just reached out to them and asked nicely.
0: How, how was Christina Tosi?
2: Well, she has people. Like when you're Christina Tosi, you have people. So I, went, <laughs> so you to her I people. went through her people and they were really great. And yeah, we had to go through and you know sign all these legal documents. And
0: what do you have to agree not to do with a recipe?
2: With someone like Christina, where it's like an iconic cake, you have to use, for one, like use their photos, their pictures. They don't want my screwed up creations, like misrepresenting <laughs> them. Like you have to use their photos. and.
0: In other words, this can't be a nailed it situation.
2: Yeah. And that's what my house is. Like that's what our kitchen is because I'm a really terrible cake froster. I can't make things look pretty. So it was very challenging to make these look great for the pictures. All right. Mm. Half teaspoon. Half teaspoon cream of tartar.
0: So not much. What is cream of tartar? I Alan? knew you
2: were gonna ask that, and yeah. so I looked it up because I had no clue. So it's not a cream; it's a powder, and it comes from wine. It's a byproduct of fermenting grapes. Isn't that insane?
0: Cream of tartar. <laughs> yes. and it's not tartar because that's like raw meat. It's not like tartar. A tuna. Yeah, is a byproduct of wine. Yes. Do you know what it does for the recipe?
2: Yes. So it kind of, it acts as an acid. So essentially, essentially it kind of gives it that bite, that tang. So it's not just sugar on sugar action. It's not just sprinkles on white sugar on brown sugar. You get a little bit of, Something else to cut through all the sugar. It's like a snickerdoodle has this, um, the cream of tartar and snickerdoodles.
0: I love that you look this up for us.
2: Yeah, because I knew you would ask. I, was like, <laughs> well, I, I should know what cream of tartar is if I'm using it. So now we know.
0: You limited yourself to 50 recipes. Could you have gone to 60, 70?
2: Um, that would have been awful. <laughs> <laughs> So you
0: you made our engineer laugh with that one.
2: It was it was difficult getting all of these signed off, like the legal things, like with Christina Tosi. I mean, everyone had to sign some sort of legal release, like Duff Goldman, the Ace of Cakes. We had to go through his lawyer, his assistant, all kinds of people, and and they were great and they were very nice. But what was just, his
0: contribution?
2: Um, a chocolate babka. That's amazing. Do
0: you want Pam olive
2: oil? Yeah, let's just do Pam, and yeah. then we don't need anything. We'll just spray it and then we're gonna roll them out and she says not about, if i keep
0: eating them yeah
2: are you eating the dough
0: i'm eating the dough
2: <laughs> that's what we do one weed. more i usually eat more of the dough than the baked things it's kind of a problem
0: mm. the uncooked dough is the best i know it really I'm sorry, is sorry. they're better than the baked cookies i
2: think so too i love dough cookie dough is my favorite food
0: did you grow up baking at all
2: Oh gosh, no, no. I mean, maybe with my grandma, but my mom will be mad that I'm saying this, but she didn't really cook much. She didn't, I can't remember her baking except for her coffee cake, which is really great. But no, we didn't, we didn't do a lot of baking.
0: My favorite memory was being able to, when my mom would make cakes, was being able to lick the batter off the spatula.
2: hmm oh, really and the no. beater and the bowl and exactly. everything you can find.
0: So you've got cookies you've got cakes in this anything else
2: so we have i think we have five sections we have cookies cakes we have pies and tarts and then we have things you can eat with your hands and things you probably shouldn't eat with your hands (laughs) so that would be like the cheesecake is in there um what else is something you shouldn't eat with the hands the creme brulee And then things you eat with your hands. The the bread pudding thing. The bread pudding. Yeah, that would be something you shouldn't eat with your hands. But I mean, let's be real. I ate all of this with my hands (laughs) at one point or another.
0: You know, it's interesting to like go for a cheesecake recipe and decide where you're going to go for that. I mean, cheesecake is sort of the quintessential dessert.
2: So we don't have a straight up cheesecake, but we do have, um, well, we have three variations. One of them is from Erin Jean McDowell and she is like she's a goddess and she is a cheesecake goddess and so I was pointed in her direction and that was one where we had to go through the publisher and all that and it was a little more difficult but it's a rhubarb cheesecake and it's just really good and has beautiful like ribbons of rhubarb on top so it's really beautiful too and then the other cheesecake is From Dev Amadeo, and she is a baking blogger in Puerto Rico. And so, what she did that was different, that was really, really delicious once I tasted it, is she adds coconut milk, a little bit of coconut milk for Mm -hmm. creaminess and just a little, like just a little hint of coconut, but it's not much. And they were just fantastic.
0: How long do we bake these?
2: 10 minutes. 10 minutes? This really
0: is a fast recipe
2: or until the tops of the cookies have just begun to crack and the edges are set.
0: Okay, here we go. These were beautifully formed cookie dough balls, y'all. Good job.
2: Austin did good. Okay. So we added up all the flour, sugar, butter, and the chocolate that we used in the recipe testing for all of these 50 plus, because there were others recipes. And it ended up being 12 pounds of flour, 64 pounds of sugar, 30 pounds of butter, and 17 pounds of chocolate.
0: Oh, were your neighbors and friends the lucky recipients of the bounty coming out of your kitchen?
2: Yeah, but there probably wasn't as much bounty as you you would expect, because we, we certainly took care of a lot of it ourselves. But yeah, on photo shoot day, the neighbors got the extras. So we were popular. The kids were circling around on those days that's
0: the timer they look like rainbow wheels
2: so i think we're supposed to wait a few minutes for them to cool before we can try one
0: this is the longest wait
2: i wonder how many the recipe is supposed to make versus how much dough we ate (laughs) because how many cookies do we We have 24.
0: oh my god i want to eat one now i can barely it's
3: about 30 cookies So
2: we ate way more than that. Some of these are small. I think we ate way more than six cookies worth of dough.
0: I'm taking this browned one. Oh,
2: is it good? Did we do okay without the brown sugar?
0: They're gooey and still so soft. I think actually it's the benefit to not waiting.
2: Yeah, you get it all soft. My stomach's gonna hurt after this.
0: I think that that's the best kind of stomach hurt. <laughs> it does prove that there's some elasticity in recipes, especially cookies. I mean, it's hard to go wrong.
2: I mean, they say that baking is a science and you're supposed to be all precise and everything. And I'm sure for the very best, like picture perfect outcome, that's what you want. But yeah, it's, it's butter and sugar and it's delicious. It's not. I don't think it's ever not going to be, no matter how bad you screw it up.
0: Longtime Denver food critic Allison Reedy published her first cookbook, "50 Things to Bake Before You Die." Allison and her daughter Austin came to my home to bake the funfetti cookies. You'll find the recipe later today at cpr.org/slash Colorado Matters. We will also post a blueberry galette recipe by Jennifer Essex, owner of Ruby Jean Patisserie in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR
5: News. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. With a job opening now to join the Denverite team, reporting for the curious and concerned about everything making the Mile High City tick. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers.
0: Dozens of murals in Colorado celebrating Chicano life have landed on the 2022 list of America's most endangered historic places, which comes from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The listing is a victory for a community trying to preserve these works of art from weather, pollution, and gentrification. Denverite's Maggie Donahue tells us about a group leading the effort.
7: Since 2018, the Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex Murals of Colorado project has worked to promote and preserve the state's historic murals. Many of these works were created during the Chicano and civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. This is
8: huge for Chicano communities. It's so amazing because... It's finally like this national recognition.
7: That's founder Lucha Martinez de Luna. She says the murals represent and celebrate the stories of people whose history often goes unrecognized. It's
8: recognizing so many different sacrifices that people had to make to get to this point where we are acknowledging a community, we are acknowledging a people, and we are acknowledging the history.
7: But many of these murals have been lost to time. Some have faded or weathered in Colorado's harsh climate. Others were painted over or demolished by developers moving into historically Chicano neighborhoods. The murals have
8: never really had value for the people making the decisions. And so they are very much at risk and they always have been because they see them as dispensable. They are removable.
7: For artist David Ocelot Garcia, his first ever mural was whitewashed in 2020.
5: So that sparked this whole kind of energy about What are we going to do about this situation because this isn't right, you know, this isn't going to fly. We're we're not going to just say,
4: okay, well, just another mural that got painted over.
7: He painted it in 2008 on a wall in Sun Valley, a rapidly developing neighborhood in central Denver. It was a colorful reflection of his roots.
5: That mural itself represents, you know, my own uh, heritage. Some of the characters in the mural are my literally my own family.
7: And while the mural was personal for Garcia, it was also important for residents of Sun Valley.
5: People have embraced it that way too. They see it as like their own family,
4: like their children, you know, their grandparents.
7: Now, Martinez de Luna hopes the Endangered Historic Places designation will help spread awareness about the historic and cultural importance of murals like Garcia's. Yeah, we've been preserving murals for decades, so we know how to do that, but
8: how do we prevent them from being painted over? That's why this, this designation is very significant, because it's also recognizing that it's a collaboration with many entities to try and find a solution to protect them. And that's the next step, that when somebody looks at a mural, I hope that they'll look at it and say, you know, this means something to somebody. And maybe I should ask before I paint over it.
7: In the meantime, the group is working to preserve and restore the murals and hopes to change state policy to better protect them and more works of art. Maggie Donahue,
0: Denverite. Maggie is arts and culture reporter for Denverite, and she spoke with our colleague Nathan Heffel with a bit more on the preservation effort. How are these murals protected?
7: Well, the first thing is documentation. Uh, you can't protect what you don't know exists. Hmm. The mural project has an online archive of more than 40 murals across Colorado, and it's constantly adding to it. The second is that preservation piece. Uh, so part of that is preserving murals. So applying protective chemicals over the paint so it lasts longer and also working to change policies so there are more legal protections in place to guarantee people can't come in and paint over them. The project is also experimenting with a new technology that can restore murals that have already been painted over by carefully stripping away layers of paint.
5: You mentioned legal protections. What are the ways the state or city can preserve these murals?
7: So the project has been working with groups like Historic Denver to change local and state policy around murals. Right now, murals can't technically be recognized as landmarks because they're viewed as paint on a wall, which means whoever owns that wall gets to decide what happens to the mural. Um, And I spoke to Historic Denver's executive director, Annie Levinsky, about this exact issue, and she explained that generally how buildings get protected is through local landmark designation.
5: Yeah.
7: Yeah, but that that protection doesn't apply to things that don't require a permit, and technically painting a building doesn't require a permit. Uh, Also, a mural may be on the wall of a building, but the building might not be that old and might not merit historic designation. So the key is to find a way to make sure that the murals themselves are enough to get a building recognized, whether that's locally or on something like the State Register of Historic Places for Colorado.
4: This is such fascinating stuff. Thanks, Maggie, for sharing.
7: Yeah, thanks for having me, Nathan.
0: CPR's Nathan Heffel speaking with Denverite's Maggie Donahue. See photos of the murals at denverite.com. We'll also put a link in the Colorado Matters podcast. And that is our show for today. With gratitude to my team
5: Tyler Bender, Carl
4: Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
0: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel
6: Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
4: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
6: Carla Jimenez,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
6: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lawfulm and Hart Van Denburg. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and care